morning. I want to just thank even our worship team, David, Kristen, who read it. They have started us off this morning by setting the table so well for us in the songs that we've sung and the scripture that we heard read in David's prayer. I don't think I've ever felt so ill-suited to preach the magnitude of the passage we are coming to. It is something that this is always the case with any scripture, that it is beyond me, but especially when you come to something like this. As we've heard already read this morning, we are now at the point of the crucifixion of Christ. This is a moment, even if you aren't um, particularly religious, even if you didn't grow up, you've heard about this. We preach about the cross. We proclaim the cross. We decorate our buildings with the cross. We sing about the cross. We wear the cross. So we know that something about this moment is big. That something about this needs some special consideration. But we need to realize that this moment is part of a bigger story. Who doesn't love a good story? Last night, I know many of you uh, uh, were able to join um, just different people that got together at Roba's and um, we were sitting around a campfire, and as I was sitting, I was just hearing people tell different stories. Uh, even Stephen Page at one point was telling people about this book that he's reading and just how awesome it is, this story. We love stories. They draw us in. They captivate our attention. They teach us things. And one of the things that you notice when you look at stories, the best stories follow a similar pattern. They begin with the introduction, the setting. Certain promises that this is what the story is going to be about. Then there is a tension that is introduced. Something is wrong. Something is broken. That tension is developed. It grows. You get to see two different sides. The conflict is progressing until finally you reach the climactic clash between these opposing forces. And after that, you have the different resolutions. Our passage this morning is that climactic clash. It's the moment that everything has progressively been building up to. But it's a surprising climax. 
In chapter 1 of John, as we've been going the last several months through John, we, we have that introduction, we have that setting. This is the story about the light that came into darkness. This is the story about God who took on flesh. This is the story of a king who came to his people. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1.9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's the introduction. That's the setting. But it doesn't take long for the tension to be introduced. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, or the other way of saying that, the darkness does not understand it. John 1.10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. As we progress through the Gospel of John, the tension that is introduced in the first chapter just continues to develop. More and more we get to recognize who is this light. This is Jesus. That's been John's theme. Who is Jesus? He's God. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. But the tension is that he has come to his own. He has come to save them, but he's rejected. Over and over we see the power of this light, the brightness, and yet then we see the depth of darkness. And it's progressing to something. We can feel it. This tension that is rising, it needs to be resolved somehow. And both Jesus and John have alluded that something's coming. John keeps on saying, and we didn't understand it yet until after these things happened. Jesus keeps on saying, it's not time. It's not time. Until it finally was. And that's where we are this morning. The climax of the story. But this isn't just the climax of one man's story. It's not just the climax for Christ. It's not even just the climax for the Gospel of John. This is the climax of history. Everything has been building to this moment. Go back to Genesis. We are told what kind of story this is going to be. This is the story about God and his people. The golden thread that you can trace from the beginning of Scripture to the end is God's glory through the redemption of man. It's the promise that is given after the fall in Genesis 3. It is the prophecies that are given throughout the entire Old Testament. But the question is, how is this tension going to be resolved? How is the problem of sin, of our separation from God, how is that going to be fixed? It's a tension. And so we come to this point. But do you know what's surprising about this? If you do not know the story, if you didn't know what was about to happen, would you ever guess it would look like this? 
That's hard for us to do, right? Because once, when I, I love reading books and, and, and different stories, and I'll talk to people, and I'll have all of my theories, and, and I'll get together, and John, Richie, and I read a lot of the same books, and Billy then will join in, and we'll talk, and like, oh, I bet this is what's going to happen. And oftentimes, we're right. Sometimes not so. I would not have been right about this. I know that because very few people were right. They all had their ideas of how this was going to work. I, I, I want to ask you to, to put yourself into the story. Put yourself in the place of one of the disciples. And everything that's happened, they've heard the introduction. They've seen who Jesus is. They've heard the promises of what kind of story this is going to be. They've seen the tension. They've felt it. They've seen the rejection. And it's building to something. And they have that anticipation. You see Peter. They're looking forward to something. No, we know something great's going to happen. Do you think they guessed what's about to happen? This is surprising if you don't know the story. It's also surprising, though, if you do know the story. I'm not asking for a suspension of belief here where you just say, hey, let's just pretend that this never happened. Just pretend that you don't know what's going to happen. No, I never want you to pretend that Jesus didn't die. But if we understand the significance of this moment, we would have certain expectations of how this information would be shared. If I were to say, let me share you to, with you the gospel according to Stephen. And I'm going to tell you about this moment. I want to explain to you the climax of history. I would never write it like John did. What's surprising is, is yes, John was a disciple in the moment, but John's not writing it in the moment. More than almost any other author, John is always giving little asides of like, hey, and this is what was happening, and this is what, what this was leading to. John understands the significance of this moment. But when we read the past passage, the magnitude of the moment seems lost. John doesn't present it as something at face value, as something magnificent. He presents it as something mundane. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go through the passage the first time. And we're just going to read it at face value. Just read it uh, from this, the, the, the realizing the finality of the cross, but on a mundane level. And it might even surprise us of, of when we do that. But then we're going to go back through because John has a purpose in what he's doing so that we can truly understand what is happening. Look at the beginning. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. For this to be the climax, isn't that rather anticlimactic? 
four words. There they crucified him. John, don't, don't you understand what's happening here? That's how you're going to describe it? All of this buildup, all of these things that Jesus has said were going to happen, and you're going to say, there they crucified him. When we look at this, what we see is that Jesus was condemned and crucified among common criminals. Think about the disciples. This guy's saying he's the king. This guy's saying he's God. We're waiting for that big, oh man, let me flip it all on you. We're waiting for that moment where the, all of this is going to be flipped on its head. Oh yeah, you, we, we see that Pilate has a little bit of authority and the priests are doing something, but this is about to be, Jesus is going to do something spectacular. I know it. Man, if he's God and he can knock people down with his words, something is about to happen. We've seen his miracles. We've seen them try to stone him in the past, and he escaped. That, that something's going to happen. The condemnation from Pilate, that's not going to proceed. And then it does. And he's condemned. And he's crucified. And it's not even something special. He just happens with other people common criminals. It goes on and says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. If this is the climax, who's all of this about? It's all about Jesus. No one cares. He's not even in this part. They're not talking about Jesus. They're just talking about the things written about Jesus. Jesus is just a pawn in the political battle between Pilate and the priests. They don't care anymore. He's on the cross. That issue is done. What we care about now is what we're going to use this for in our battle. Remember that la the last passage that we were in, the priest twisted Pilate's arm to force him to do something he didn't want to do. He wanted to release Jesus, but they said, well, if you do that, we're going to tell Caesar. So now Pilate is responding in kind and twisting their arm and shaming them saying, hey, this is what happens to your king. He's putting in front of all of them. What, what's really happening here? Man, if this is supposed to be the big moment, shouldn't people be paying more attention to the one on the cross? goes on and we see even more it's in verse 23 when the soldier had crucified jesus they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier also his tunic but the tunic was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom so they said to one another let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see who it shall be this was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots so the children so the soldiers did these things If this is the king who owns everything, he came to his own, the world he created, 
Does it make sense for him to be stripped of his last possessions and hung in shame as the soldiers gambled for his stuff? Is this really the climax that we're expecting? He's powerless. He's got nothing. They're taking everything from him. Then it says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Well, Jesus has said he's going to take care of us. Jesus said that he's going to provide for us. That everything we need, when we ask in his name, he will give it to us. Here he is, hanging on a cross, asking other people to care for the ones that should be under his care. Jesus charged the one he loved to comfort and provide for the one who had been under his care. This is the guy that's going to take care of us? After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus recognized the end, and after he received sour wine, he released his spirit. It's done. It's finished. That's it. We kept on waiting and thinking something's going to happen, and it didn't. He's dead. That's the whole passage. I didn't skip anything. I didn't leave anything out, kind of. It's very mundane. John, if John is really expecting us to know who Jesus is and believe all of these things that Jesus is going to do, presenting it in this way is not very compelling. W what are you doing, John? Like, give us, give us something. R reveal to us that this really is the climactic moment. This isn't what we would expect. This doesn't look like victory. This doesn't look like the climax. This doesn't look like it's the greatest resolve of the greatest tension. Is this really how you would talk about the climax? Is this really how we would do it? If Jesus is who he said he is, how is this happening? See, what's even more surprising in this is that we have other accounts of Christ's death. We have other accounts that have a little bit more magnitude to them. The other three Gospels talk about that when Jesus was on the cross, it grew dark. That the curtain was torn in two. 
Even that tombs were opened and dead people came to life. Man, if you are going to present that this is God, that something big is happening, those are the things you would want to talk about. Okay, yes, they were killing God, but let me show you what was happening. It got dark because they killed the light of the world. But his power was there because he was the life of the world. The veil was torn in two. Why is John leaving out those details and presenting us with this list? Here's what I think is happening. What John is showing us is that how you perceive the cross depends entirely on who you see Jesus to be. John isn't using the cross so much to prove Christ's identity. He's using it as a proof to who you see him to be. If you see Jesus as just a man, then you will see this passage as something mundane. He couldn't save himself from the cross. He's just a pawn in a political battle. He couldn't even keep his own possessions. He couldn't care for those he was responsible for. He reached the end. He says he's thirsty. He recognizes it's done, and he gives up his spirit. That's how you will read this if you see Jesus as a man. That's how the Jews are seeing this. If this was such a moment for them, then you would expect, man, they would recognize it and turn, but they didn't. Why? Because they were unwilling. They could not recognize Jesus for who he was. But that's not the case for us. John has shown us who Jesus is. And if we understand who Jesus is, it changes everything about this passage. John 9.39 says this, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Is John surprised that people are going to misinterpret what's happening here? No. Those who claim to see are blind. The chief priests are standing in front of their king. And they say, no, don't say that. Say he said he was king. They're blind. The world, those who are perishing, will look at the cross and say, this is folly. That's not the climax. That's the defeat. That doesn't prove who Jesus is. It proves who Jesus wasn't. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. cross is final if you look at it in a mundane way. All of these things, that's the end. 
But there's a different perspective that when we see it as those who are being saved, as we see it as ones who have been given sight from God, it is majestic. Look again at the very beginning. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Jesus took the place of sinners as he was crucified among sinners. This is why he came. Jesus came. This was part of his plan. This wasn't defeat. Jesus willingly took the place of sinners. He was placed among them. Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession to the transgressors. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The finality of the cross was not that Jesus was forced to be condemned and crucified. No, Jesus willingly took the place of sinners as he was crucified among sinners. Look at the next part where Pilate and the Jews are having this whole discussion where they're doing and they're saying, well, this is how we're going to present this. This is our political motivation behind this. But what's really happening? Jesus was lifted up as king as he drew all people to himself. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. How many times have we seen in John where people say things not understanding their true significance. Jesus, the king of the Jews. And how was it presented? What does John pull out to say? In what way was it written? In Aramaic? The, land, the, the, the language of the people? In Latin? The language of the soldiers of the empire? In Greek? the language of the world. In John 12, 32, Jesus says this, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When I am lifted up, I will, up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's what Jesus is doing. In this moment, he is accomplishing what he said he would do. We then go to this scene where Jesus is shamed before the soldiers. The part where when I was a kid, I didn't really want to think about this element of what the implication is is if they are dividing his clothes. The shame of nakedness. 
of hanging exposed before his creation. But what's really happening? Jesus endured the shame as he loved his own to the end. This brings back what happened in John 13. Where Jesus is there and it says that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And how do the disciples react? Don't do that. It's shameful. Is Jesus here being forced to, ha- to bear the shame? Are the soldiers in power over him and this isn't the way he would choose to do it? No. Jesus endured what we would consider shame because he loved his own to the end. This is what Hebrews 12 says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I had a bad understanding of this word, despising the shame. When I think of of despising something, I think about it as hating something, As, as, as just being totally against it. That's not it. Despising the shame is not even considering it. It's not even worthy of my time. I I love the Philadelphia Eagles. I hate the Cowboys, who we play today. I don't despise the Cowboys because I think about the Cowboys all the time. I despise cricket. I never think about it ever. Jesus doesn't despise the shame in that he hates the shame. It didn't even register because he had something greater. He despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. Jesus considered the needs of others as he faced his darkest hour. What we see with Jesus and his mother in this moment, this is the darkest hour. But even here, Jesus is considering the care of others. Jesus considered the needs of others as he faced the darkest hour. Have we already seen him do that? All of John 13 through 17, in that moment where John, in John 12, it says, now is my soul troubled. And then he spends the next four chapters, five chapters, he spends the next five chapters giving his disciples what they need. It's his moment of greatest hour, and yet he focuses on their needs. 
And then we reach the final section. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus finished the work as he drank the bitter cup. John 12, 27, it says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. There's a story in the Old Testament that, that this passage makes me think about. That one of, of God's prophets was wanting to see, see God's presence, and God said, hey, I'm, I'm going to have my presence come to you. And, and this, this mighty wind comes by, all of these fantastic, huge things, and after each one of them, it says, that, but God was not in that. And in the other Gospels, we have these huge moments where we're like, well, that's where God is revealed. He's going to be shown in, in the darkness. He's going to be shown in the tearing of the temple. That's where we can see him. But in that passage in the Old Testament, where is God found? In his voice. Those words that he speaks in the end. We find the same thing here in John. Where do we truly see who Jesus is? Where is the climax found? It's found in this. It is finished. It is finished. And John doesn't let us miss the fact that that's everything he's going to. Because he actually uses the word three times where he says, knowing that all was now finished, that's the first one, said to fulfill, that word fulfill is also the same root for finish. And then Jesus says, it is finished. Now what are we talking about here? What is this idea of something being finished? This is not like when I give a job to some of my children, go clean your room, and they come down and I'm like, hey, what are you doing down here? Oh, I finished. I finished it. How did you finish it? Because you were only up there for five minutes. There is no way. Now, in their mind, it might have been finished, but it wasn't actually finished the way I meant for it to be finished. It wasn't complete. When Jesus says it is finished, the, the idea behind this is that it is done but it is done in completion, it is done in the right way, and it is done forever with ongoing results. It's done. Jesus, when he performed the sacrifice once and for all time, the priests who had daily come into the presence performing sacrifices that could never take away sin, 
but Christ the high priest who came into the holy of places and performed the perfect sacrifice. It's finished. What does this mean for us? How is this the climax? Because everything has been leading up to here. All of the promises and prophecies that there is one who is coming who will do the work we can't do. Who will reverse the curse. Who will save those who are sinners, who are separated. Jesus knows. And knowing that all was finished, said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Wait, wh why say it was finished and then give up? That's not what's happening. In John 10, Jesus told us this is what he was going to do. John 10, 14, he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The climax that we are looking for is found in the crucifixion of Christ. The only way the work could be finished was through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John has been building towards this. Jesus has been building towards this. Scripture has been building towards this. But the only way you're going to see this truly being the climax is if you see who Jesus is. Understand that everything he promised, everything he said he came for was finished. Because he finished the work, we can become children of God. Because he finished the work, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Because he finished the work, the Son of Man was lifted up just like Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so that whoever believes in the Son does not die. Because he finished the work, he comes to save and not to condemn. Because he finished the work, his flesh gives life. Because he finished the work, we know who he truly is. Because he finished the work, those who were blind now truly see. Because he finished the work, he makes the many into one flock. Because he finished the work, he gathers the children of God who were scattered. Because he finished the work, the seed that fell and died now bears much fruit. Because he finished the work, the Father's name is glorified and the son is glorified in him because he finished the work the ruler of the world will be cast out because he finished the work the world knows that the son loves the father because he finished the work we can take heart knowing that he has overcome the world behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world it is finished and that's just from the gospel of john and it's not all of it 
Look at the promises throughout all of Scripture. It's finished. This is the climax we have been looking for. The hour has come. The work is finished. The promises are fulfilled through Christ who finished the work. Our condemnation for sin is laid on another. This is the climactic clash. How is all of this going to work? Now, don't make, uh, make no mistake. There, there's more to come. There's more resolution. We're, we're looking forward to the resurrection. Because there's a new tension in this passage. What's the new tension? He's dead. But understand what his death accomplished. The greatest moment of tension finished the work. We now will see all of the resolutions. The rest of our, our time in the Gospel of John are going to see the progressive resolutions that all come from this work. This is the mercy that we have. What is it that we deserve? Death. We deserve crucifixion. We deserve separation. What do we call it when we don't get what we deserve? Mercy. Where is mercy found? How is mercy offered? Because he drank the cup. Because he absorbed the wrath. Now, we're going to get to grace in the resurrection because the mercy is that we do not have to die the death he died. The grace is that we get to live the life he lives. But this is what we have here. This is the climax we have been looking for. I think the question for all of us then comes back to what does the cross reveal about us? If you remember how we interpret, how we understand this passage all comes back to who we see Jesus to be. But the reality is not that this is something mundane. This is something majestic. Christ was not condemned to die among sinners unable to save himself. Christ chose to die for sinners in order to save the world for himself. Christ was not presented as a pitiful king to serve as a warning to the world. Christ was lifted up as the king of kings to draw the world to himself. Christ was not involuntarily stripped of the, his robes, forced to die in shame. Christ voluntarily offered himself up, despising the shame. Christ did not give up his care for others because he was incapable of providing for them. Christ offered the greatest care for others in salvation and then commissioned others to serve as his hands and feet. Christ did not cry, it is finished, because there was nothing he could do. 
Christ cried, it is finished, because at the cross, everything was done. So who is Jesus? If Jesus is some man, you will never understand this passage. If Jesus is not your Savior, if Jesus is not your King, you will only ever see this as the mundane. But if you see Jesus for who he truly is, the mundane becomes majestic. If you're here and you have have yet to come to the cross understanding what Jesus has done, then, then I would just implore you to do so. Place your faith in Jesus. Repent and believe. That's the only way that this mercy is poured out on you. The only way that the truth of the song, once your enemy, now seated at your table, is possible is if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But if you have done that, what is our response? This is our response, and this is our big idea. Lift up your king who finished the work as he was lifted up for us. Lift up your king who finished the work as he was lifted up for us. That's our response. This is the climax of history. This is the climax of John. The work is finished. When we come more and more to understanding what that means, it changes everything. No longer are we striving to do this in our strength. No longer do we think that this is on us. No longer do we feel forced to fabricate the results that we want. It's finished. Take the weight off. He bore the weight. He took it. He went to the cross. He drank our cup. The one that was meant for us. He took it so that we can drink the sweet cup of grace and mercy. Lift up your king who finished the work as he was lifted up for us.